Uh, welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Frad. I'm the Assistant Program Director for Trisha, and I am very happy to be uh, welcoming all of you to our third and final installment of Ritual Reenactments, Becoming Moshe, a Mother, and a High Priest in the Amim Nora in Tefillah with Rebbenit Leia Sarna. Uh, Rebbe Sarna is the Associate Director of Education as well as the Director of High School Programs for Drisha. Uh, she previously, previously served as the Director of Religious Engagement at Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation in Chicago and was ordained at Yeshivat Mahara in 2018. Uh, her published works have appeared in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Warehouse, and My Jewish Learning. Uh, and we are thrilled to be uh, joining her here for this last installment of her class, focusing on the different roles that the Yom Yom in liturgy asks us to step into in certain key moments in our davening. So in our first two sessions, we explored the relationship between the 13 Mido and Slichot and Moshe, as well as uh, the Shofar and Rosh Hashanah and motherhood. Uh, tonight's session, we'll be focusing on the Yom Kippur Avoda liturgy. Um, in the times of the Beit Hamikdash, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, and his actions were one of the focal points of the day. And uh, that is no longer quite as true in uh, in in now in in our times where we do not have a temple and a high priest. But this session is going to look at how the liturgy calls upon each of us to become the high priest during our Yom Kippur davening. So without any further ado, uh, Rabbi Sarna, uh, let's, let's learn. Hi, everyone. Um, I hope you all had beautiful Rosh Hashanahs and um, you all stepped into, for those of you who've been following along, last time we talked about the shofar and motherhood. Um, and I hope maybe that was something people were able to kind of access um, during shofar blowing this year. Um, and today we're gonna talk about um, the high priest. So as Michael mentioned, um, the high priest played a kind of starring role in the Yom Kippur um, as kind of it was originally um, conceived. Um, and we read about that on Yom Kippur in the Torah reading, which comes from Parshat, which is most of Parshat um, Ahri mode. So I just want to um, ask before we get started, like, can you imagine you live in temple times, there's a temple, there's a high priest, um, and like you're not there, you're on your farm, like in the Galilee or whatever. Um, what does Yom Kippur look like for you? Tally raises her eyebrows and shakes her head a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we got. Um. I feel like depending on where you lived, you'd be kind of like getting ready to, like it would be like weird because you'd be getting ready to travel for Sukkot already. Great, so yeah. Sukkot is coming out five days later, and so you'd be, stressful. yeah, it'd be stressful. Um, maybe you're like trying to get get it together to go to the temple for Sukkot. What, what are you doing or not doing like in your own home on this day? Or like compare contrast to what we now do. Probably not in shul all day. Probably not in shul all day, yeah. We have um, synagogues in the Second Temple period, but very unclear that they were used for liturgical purposes. 
Um, they were probably just places where people gathered. We have, there's a, uh, I forget, Tali might know actually what it's called. There's like an inscription that we found from a second temple period that gives like a description of what it was used for. And it's like, and here's where we like got together and planned things and housed guests or whatever, it's something along those lines. <laughs> and and no, no, uh, no discussion at all of like prayer or ritual. Um, so yeah, so probably not that, and particularly like we did not get up and like recite the avoda, um, presumably not that. Um, but what we were doing probably was fasting, probably was some kind of inui nefesh, um, affliction of ourselves, um, because that is described in the Torah for this day. So um, before we get to that, I do actually, I'm gonna share my screen, we're gonna look at some sources. I wanna talk about um, the, um, okay, so in the context of the Torah, where we get to um, Ahremo, I feel like you sometimes think like, oh, Ahremo, that's the name of the Parsha, but actually those are words that refer to something, which is something that happened, um, which happened um, on the eighth day. So what happens is you have the days of the Miluim, the days where the um, priests were like Aaron and his family were becoming appointed into their priesthood. That is a seven-day process, so we'll talk more about that later. Um, and then on the eighth day, Moshe calls, so we're in source one, um, Moshe calls to Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he says, this is what um, God has commanded you to do for the purpose of so the presence of the Lord may appear to you because at this moment we're going to have the Mishkan coming into functionality with the priests and all of the like stuff that's been like built and done and whatever all of that's finally ready to go and like what's the point that the presence of God will appear to us. And it all um, kinds of works and everything goes well and they come down and Aaron blesses the people and it's all awesome until until you have the children of Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, they each take their fire pan, they put fire in it, they lay incense on it, and they offer fire before the Lord, alien fire, which he had not enjoyed upon enjoined upon that, right? Moshe said, this is what you're supposed to do. And that, and the whole, and by the way, the, the verse right before this is like, it had worked and all the people, like the languages, like they, they were celebrating, like it was so exciting. And not even a view, like then get up and they're like, yeah, let's keep doing more, which had not been commanded to them. Um, so then fire comes out and, um, oh, sorry, I forgot to, or I messed up the translation for this, sorry about that. Uh, fire comes out and, and, and eats them or kills them and they die before God. And so then, and then we have this big brick. That's the other problem, and, or not problem, obviously, but that's the other like part, piece, piece of why we don't see these stories as continuous is because in between at the at halfway through Shmini, we already have this transition into, and then here are all the rules of Kashrut, and here's other stuff, and then we have all Parshio Tazriya Mitzora. Um, and then after Tazriya Mitzora, we have this, right? Abar Shem El Moshe, we're in source two now here. Achari Moet Shnei Bnei Aharon, Bekarbatan Lifnei Hashem, Bayamuzu. The Lord speaks to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they drew too close to the presence of the Lord. Okay, so it's after their death. Now God turns back to Aaron and says to him, 
the or um or says to says to Moshe, tell your brother Aaron, You can't just go in to the holy place. Me be la parochet that's behind the curtain. Asher um in front of the cover that is upon the ark, in case you'll die, right? You can't just like go messing around. The Mishkan is a place of these extraordinarily serious and careful rules. And you can't just like, you can't just make it up. You can't just do what you're feeling. You have to do exactly what I say in this place. Um, because that's like where God is the most present, maybe. The, the words mean because I appear in a cloud over the cover. It's a little hard to know exactly what that means or how we're exactly supposed to understand that, but there's something intense about God's presence in that place. And that God is saying, okay, what happened with that Davin you? Let's make sure that never happens again. So let me tell you how to get, if you want to get that level of close to me, you have to follow the rules. And here are the rules. Thus only shall Aaron enter the shrine with a bull for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. And then this whole intense, long description of exactly what you're supposed to do. So Tali, was that a hand or you were just... Um, so, um, um, so with that whole description, it's not just a, on Yom Kippur once a year, I want to be this close to you. That actually doesn't, well, from the beginning, that's not how it's exactly laid out, right? It's laid out of like, you might be, you might want to come into the, the Holy of Holies sometimes. But let me tell you, like that, that can't just happen like when the spirit moves you. It's this entire complicated ritual. And possibly, by the way, um, there are people who read the Torah as saying, yeah, like in the eyes of the, in the chat, you could do this anytime. And then it says, and by the way, once a year, you have to do this, uh, which is kind of an interesting, an interesting, but, but highly conceivable um, read of what's happening, of what's happening in the chat here. Obviously, that, that doesn't, that's not how our tradition has interpreted it. Um, our tradition interprets it that this is a ritual you do once a year on Yom Kippur, um, but it's definitely like a very good read of the verses. And then it says, by the way, right, this whole way of go going into the Holy of Holies, when you want to do that, So this will be a you, for you a law for all time, the seventh month, the tenth day of the month. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you of all your sins, shall be clean before the Lord. So if you read this with what came before, then how do you become clean before the Lord? With what Aaron just did, which which makes a lot of sense. The language of kapara comes up in, in there, in the dot, dot, dot here also. Um, um, so it, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense. The question is whether it could be done um, other times or not. Um, Anyways, and so they do this, and, and they do this whole thing, right? Uh, the priest who has been anointed and ordained to serve as priest in the place of his father shall make expiation. Um, right, so that's the Chipera Kohen. Vlavashe big day abad big day kodesh. He puts on his special clothes, um, and he he purges the shrine. So so that's part of this. Um, it's a little bit like confusing what exactly that means because it's not about cleanliness. It's actually about sprinkling blood on all the things, which I think is not really what we would call purging, um, but it is maybe what we would call um, a spiritual purging of sorts. Um, and, um, and so the, 
right on this day you will do this thing which we have just described at length and now it kind of gets recapped um and and you'll you'll for sure do it achat bashana. so that this would then be a read to say actually what i've been promoting until now of you can do it whenever you want and you have to do it once a year this would be a verse to to to, to, to militate against that uh, only achat bashana once a year you'll go and have this experience and it's when i tell you it is and it's in this way that you're going to do it and not the way nadav and you did it and this way you'll do it and you'll live but the point is also that you learn from here how high stakes this moment is that nadav and you did it wrong and they died and now you have to go in and do the, the thing that maybe was related to what they were doing and you're gonna do it again and you're gonna live right if I were Aaron I'd be like I'm done like goodbye I'm not going anywhere. right my children did this and they died and I'm not going anywhere near that and the intense trauma that we're kind of asking Aaron to overcome in order to to do this and in order to do something that's as high stakes as what's being described is like quite quite serious so I think if you were a normal person in, just to go back to the question that we were describing, you're a normal person in, in the times when the temple stood, you would probably be doing this, right? So you're practicing self-denial and you're not doing any work. Um, so it's, it's a Shabbat Shabbaton. Um, it's like the most Shabbat of all the Shabbats and you're, um, and you're, you're not doing work and you're afflicting your body. But all of the kind of ritual drama is happening in the temple. And if you're at the temple, we'll see um, a description of it later. If you're at the temple, there's all this stuff going on. But if you're not at the temple, you just trust that, you just trust that, um, that what's happening there is going to be the right thing. And you will then achieve atonement. You will, the whole nation will achieve atonement through a ritual that's happening. If you're, you're a farmer in the Galilee, um, that's happening quite far away from you. Um, and uh, I want to read a quote by um, by a Jewish philosopher named, it's all the way at the bottom here, sorry, um, by a Jewish philosopher named, named Michael Wishagrad um, from his book, Body of Faith. So he, he writes this about Yom Kippur, and for me, this is like very, um, Michael's heard me talk about this quote before, I think. Um, it's very animating to my like observance of, of Yom Kippur. He says, there are those for whom prayer and repentance as the basis for forgiveness of sin is a great advance over reliance on bloody sacrifices. Those who hold this view, it's not our purpose now to examine it on its merits, cannot possibly understand what was involved in shifting in Judaism shifting to prayer and repentance as the center of its religious existence. The shift from cult, i.e. what was happening in the temple, to prayer is so difficult as to seem almost impossible. And here's why. Cult is concrete and incarnated. In it, the holy appears with predictability, and there is therefore a security in God's dwelling with Israel in the temple. That Jews who survived the destruction of the temple could be made to believe that on the Day of Atonement, their sins would be forgiven, even though there was no temple and no sacrifices, borders on the miraculous. It was possible because the ancient Jew felt God's love for him and could therefore come to believe that his sins would be forgiven without the temple and its sacrifices. What he's saying is that if you imagine the times of the temple, okay, so what is Yom Kippur for you, Mrs. Farmer in the Galilee? You, Mrs. Farmer in the Galilee, are just at home, you're fasting, and you trust that something very concrete happened in Jerusalem that then achieved forgiveness and atonement for you and foretells a, a coming year of, uh, of beginning with a clean slate. 
And then all of a sudden, that temple gets destroyed. And you're maybe still a farmer in the Galilee. And now what? And how does that even, how do we maintain any sense of this thing that could happen or this day that could happen? Um, and yet somehow we did. And I want to argue that one of the ways that we did was by transforming the high priesthood into something that is accessible to everyone in our liturgy. So um, I'll, I'll try and prove that premise to you at the end, um, but maybe you'll have some recollections of how we do the avoda that will already um, be, be providing support um, to, that, to that idea. But just walk with me for a second because it, if my argument is that we are going to become the high priest, then I think we have to spend a little bit of time learning about um, how one might become the high priest, just so you like have a sense of who this character is um, and, and how, how you might go about um, and how in, in times of the temple one, one became the high priest, because it's, it's kind of important to, um, to know just like, what it, you know, like how, how you could have become the high priest would you have wanted to. So, um, here's the Rabbah. He has like a, a long, a long description of of how one might have become the high priest back in the day. So he says, So we're in, sorry, we're in the Mishnah Torah, um, in the Klei Mekdash, um, his description of all the vessels in the temple. Um, and one of the things that becomes very clear in the Rambam, but in general, is a very good read of what the point of the priests are, um, is that they are vessels. Um, and that helps you get around some of the weird, uncomfortable kind of things like that priests are disqualified for certain uh, like physical um, differences that they have that really doesn't read particularly well um, to the modern eye. Um, and, and one of the ways that sometimes, you, and I'm not suggesting that this like completely resolves it, not by any means, but one of the ways that people read it is through the eyes of the Rambam who says, yeah, it's because if you think it's dehumanizing, that's the point. The point is that they're not acting as humans, they're acting as vessels. And, um, and so, um, so he would say, and so he, he includes the description of the priests in his, his rules about the vessels of the temple. So you have um, descriptions about all the different pans and things that were used, and you have descriptions of the hierarchy of priests, and those are all included kind of in the same rules, um, because in the eyes of the Rambam, the, the priests are basically just pans um, and things and whatever. So that, that's just like a, a fun little uh, thing. But uh, anyways, okay, so he, he says when you appoint a high priest, he's going to be um, the head of all the priests, and so his appointment comes about in two ways. Um, it ritually comes about in two ways. He gets um, anointed with anointing oil, and they put on fancy high priest clothes. So the clothes of the priests are actually very important if a priest does priestly services not wearing his the right correct clothing then the services don't work um, and that also ties into this argument that priests are basically just vessels in the temple uh, that they need to you know like if you have a I don't know like if you have a teacup that doesn't have the right um, way to hold it then like it's not very useful teacup because you're going to burn your hand um, and so too like the priests have to be like wearing have all the right parts wearing all the right things um, and um, and so putting putting the high priest into his extra high priestly clothes are very important um, otherwise he would be what's called a mechusar begadim he would be lacking in clothing um, and his, his service doesn't work so anyways okay so you put him in his high priest clothing etc so that's like the some of these verses about who the high priest is coming from the beginning of parsha and more where we describe um 
what happens to the priests and high priests when they lose um, relatives because they're not allowed to um, become in, or they're usually not allowed to become impure to dead bodies. It says the, pre the high priest who's exalted above his fellows on whose head the anointing oil has been poured. So if you don't have anointing oil, which in the second temple they didn't have anointing oil, then you um, you just clothe him in the larger number of clothing. So on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who had been ordained to wear the vestments. Um, and so the, the, vest, the clothing um, carries the same kind of anointing investiture kind of weight um, that the that the oil does anyways and then we have some description about how for seven days um you get oiled every day and you put on the clothes every day for seven days but even after one day you're still um right if, if you just do it once it still works um and and so who appoints so here's 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 one of the the things i, I want i want you to notice particularly who appoints the high priest according to the rambam so you only the supreme court of 71 only the sanhedrin um, of 71 judges has the power to appoint the kohen gadol um and um and the rambam says which is there's about to be so okay so he has to be appointed by the Sanhedrin but but the position is inherited so on the one hand the Sanhedrin appoint him and on the other hand it's inherited um and uh so it's either your son or whoever is your inheritor or oh show um so and and whoever is like would be first in line for inheritance is also first in line to inherit these inherited um power positions you'll notice by the way um this is just like a little like pet subject of mine um kingship becomes kind of the um, model for all kinds of positions of power. This is a, a common theme in the Rambam and plays out in um, negative ways in terms of some of the, the Rambam's positions about these positions of power potentially being open to women because the Rambam would say kingship is only open to men therefore all positions of power are only open to men and here you're seeing him him play that exact same like the rules of kingship apply to other things um, in exactly the same way. Any, any appointed position says the Rambam um, it passes down the way kinship passes down which is dynastically um, right we just did that so it, ideally the, the person who's inheriting you should fill your place in in wisdom or at least in fear and awe even if um, he doesn't have the same level of wisdom um, as it says about a king, which, as I mentioned, is kind of his paradigm for these inherited positions of power, who Ubanav Akarb Israel, he and his descendants may reign long amidst Israel. Um, so, um, so it's him and his descendants, meaning that that these positions are dynastic. So that's how we learn that kingship is dynastic. So similarly, for any position in Israel, just like the king, um, that anyone who merits to have that position merits it for himself and for his entire um, lineage, his entire line.
So that's what Rambam who thinks the Sanhedrin appoints the king. But once a king is appointed, or sorry, the Sanhedrin appoints, oh, I just did the thing. The Sanhedrin appoints the high priest. And once the high priest is appointed, it carries um, down dynastically. But I, I'm sure the Rambam would say, and I think, I think this is how the Rambam is traditionally read. Every, like, okay, so you have a high priest, the high priest, um, God forbid, you know, dies, whatever. And then, you know, at 120, right, old age, the high priest dies. That's typically not how high priests died from what we know about the second temple. Um, and, um, and, um, and then his son would then be appointed by the Sanhedrin. I mean, you still have this like appointment piece seems to be very important. Um, and the Tosvot though disagree with the Rambam. And the Tosvot say, um, so they say actually a Kohen Gadol is appointed, um, which the Rambam agrees, right? The Kohen Gadol is appointed, but they say the Kohen Gadol actually can be kicked out. Or the Rambam says not only can the Kohen Gadol not be kicked out, you replace him with his own child. Um, and they are, uh, and, they, and the Tosfot say, and, and it seems like this is dependent on the king and on the other priests. As it says in the chapter that we're about to look at in Yavamot, that Yanai, the king, established Yoshu ben Gamla as the Kohen Gadol. So we have a source in the Talmud that we're about to see in a second, so you can get excited. Um, a source in the Talmud that says a king appointed um, Yoshua ben Gamla to be a Kohen Gadol. So clearly it seems that kings can appoint high priests and not the and not just the Sanhedrin. Um, and, and when a king appoints and says, the other, so there's two differences between Rambam and Tosu. Rambam says appointed by the Sanhedrin, Tosfut says appointed by the king. Rambam says this is a lifetime appointment. Tosfut says a king can unappoint you um, also should they should they so desire. Um, so we'll just take like a little brief like sidestep into this Gemara. It doesn't do particularly anything to advance my argument, but it's like great. Um, so we're just gonna look at it real quick. Uh, so we have a Mishnah that says, um, we, we have a Mishnah that tells just the very like earliest touches of the story that really leaves you like, as with all Mishnahic stories, they're all like one sentence long and you're always like, ah, that is not enough for me. Um, so, so to hear. Um, so you have Masa Yoshu Ben Gamla, Martha Bat Vaitus. So you have an incident with Yoshu Ben Gamla who betrothed Martha Bat Vaitus, who was a widow, that's an important part. And the king made um, Yoshu Ben Gamla the high priest of and he married her nevertheless. So this is a problem because high priests are not allowed to be married to widows. Um, but you might think everyone in the story is just doing whatever they want anyways, um, which kind of just seems to be the case. And the Gemara um, expands on the theme and, and tells you the rest of the story. So the Gemara says, um, um, Manahu in nitmana Lo, um, he was appointed by, the king appointed him, yes, but it wasn't that he, like, should have been appointed. Um, Amar of Yosef, Katir, um, so Rav Yosef says this is a conspiracy or, like, something inappropriate was happening here. Kachazina hachada Amar of Asi, Tarkava didinare ailele martava baitus lianai malka, aibde mukile leoshu bengama vekahane ravrave. Um, Rav Asi says, Martaba Baitus, meaning the woman in this marriage, the widow, uh, brought a vessel the size of a 
Hafsaya, a Tarkov, um, full of coins, quo dinar, to Kenyanai, and then he appointed Yoshio Bengala to be the high priest. Um, so that's exciting. I love me some good, like, uh, you know, monarchic drama. Um, but what's amazing is that um, it seems to have worked, right? Like, it, you know, like, you can't, like, like, if I said, okay, like, today I'm the high priest, and, like, now I'm going to go do the Yom Kippur ritual, like, we, we saw that there are incredibly high stakes to that, right? Like, Nadav and Avihu died um, trying to just, like, be happy, and, um, I don't know, whatever, there's a million ways to read that story of what exactly they were doing, what is this Asia Zara, okay, fine, but it seems like they weren't doing anything nearly as corrupt as, like, this story um and yet this guy becomes the Kohen Gadol and presumably like did the thing on this day which is um it, it right did the thing on Yom Kippur and and like didn't die from that um as far as we know at least and uh so that's like really fascinating and, and somewhat disturbing that that really it seems like you have some form of appointment that makes you a high priest and it and it and it works even in these kind of very strange ways. Um, and um, Rav Moshe has, this is actually an amazing chuba. so in your free time, look this up and read it. For anyone who has Chicago roots, um, this chuba is actually about, sorry, I know there's so many like side things about these sources I'm bringing, um, but I like, can't help myself, so just stay with me for a second. Um, this chuba is about, it's from 1934, so it's like the Depression-ish, like kind of towards the end of the Depression, and you have, um, you have a union of Shuchtim in Chicago, and they, it had been like, basically there was like a union boss and he would decide what placement you got. And if you got a good placement, then you would make a lot of money and other people would make no money. And if you are like a new community in Chicago and you wanted a shulchate, you would call the union boss and you would be like, hey, please send me a shulchate. And you didn't care like who he sent you, you just needed someone who would be a shulchate. And the shulchate who got sent to like poor places, weren't buying as much meat or had less lucrative positions, at the union meeting voted, we're all gonna get paid 40 bucks a week. Um, and, and we're going to redistribute all the wealth amongst us. And then it caused this like massive uprising within the union and they wanted to take down the union boss and whatever. And so the question is, can we depose the union boss or is he, um, or is he like Aminui? Has he been like fully appointed? Um, and therefore he cannot be deposed. Um, and um, it's just like this amazing insight into like what Judaism in a, in a rather large like American metropolis looked like in the, in the 1930s. Um, anyways, and so then as part of his answer about the union boss, he gets to the appointment, he looks to the appointment of the high priest and he talks about exactly our um, debate between Rashi and Tosvot. So, so remember we saw, um, sorry, not Rashi and Tosvot, the Rambam and Tosvot. So usually debates are Rashi and Tosvot. This one happens not. So, um, so, so he says, um, I think I brought kind of a lot here, but he has this really beautiful read where he says, um, Chazaka Loshaya. So, oh, so the question is, right? Can you depose the union boss? And does the union boss have like a chazaka on his on his position? Like, does he have like a 
maybe like a stranglehold on it or like does he just have this like standing claim to it that can't be easily broken or can you just like vote him out um um so the it, your your hold on your position only comes when the heart of the appointment of your position was because of a need so what does that mean like the Jews need a high priest, and therefore they appointed someone who was appropriate to it. Not because they want to give him position and greatness, rather because they need him. But, uh, but because we need him and because we need someone in the this position and he's the right guy for the position, so we put him in it. And then along with that comes position and grandeur for him as is accorded to him by the Torah, Zikawa Torah, because and therefore, this, the person who's appointed in that manner, because the position needs filling and you're the right guy for the job, um, therefore that person gets to hold on to that position forever. So meaning it's not about, oh, we needed to, um, we assumed it was just temporary because it wasn't temporary. They didn't, they didn't appoint him for like, because they wanted to appoint him. They appointed him because they needed someone in that role. That need is not a temporary need. And because the need is what caused him to be appointed, and that need is not temporary. His appointment is forever. Um, did I say that clearly enough? Should I keep trying? Okay. Well, he repeats it a little bit, so hopefully it'll. Uh, um, okay. So right. So therefore, right. That's forever. But if you're appointed because you want power and position, as then the power and position are a gift to you from the people who appointed you. And therefore they can unappoint you. And that then is is dependent there because it, it, the position came about your your holding of that position came about through people's desiring of you, and that desiring of you can wane or go away. You have to assume you're not going to stay beloved forever. Um, therefore, you actually can be um, you actually can be taken out of your position. Um, by the people who put you there because it's actually much more about your relationship with them than it is about the Jewish people's like need for this position to be filled um, and it was actually much more about just like grandeur and position for you um, and therefore you can be removed. Um, and so that's, so then he argues that um, Tosfot are talking about a person who bought his way into the position by the king and therefore the king can remove him, as opposed to someone who was appointed by the Sanhedrin, who are acting on behalf of um, the Jewish people who have this need for a high priest and therefore someone who is put into their position by the Sanhedrin is there permanently. Um, so you have these kind of two different ways in which a high priest can um, come about into being. And they both seem to work. And in Rav Moshe's understanding, and again, there's other understandings, and some people just say, like, the, the Tosfo gets gets panned because he seems to disagree with the Tosafta. Anyways, it's like a whole complicated, so yeah. Um, but um, 
but the point, but, but in Rav Moshe's reading of it, and this like truly stellar chuba that you should read all of in your own time if you want to learn about Shrita unions, um, it, he, so his understanding is that actually both work and there's just different kind of rules that, that go with each of them. So if you're appointed by the Sanhedrin because there's like a vacancy and it needed to be filled, um, or you have like a dynastic right to it, then, um, then that's your job permanently. Um, and if you um, were appointed through like this Hasmonean like political appointment, by the way, Yanai in the Gemara is like, He's the only, I think he's the only named Hasmonean king in the Gemara, and he's like awful. Every story in which he appears, he is like the worst. Um, and and they just like collapsed everything that they hate about the Hasmoneans into this like one evil Hasmonean king character, um, who is King Yadai, and he sucks. Um, and um, and but the other problem classically with the Hasmoneans is that um, they also collapsed the kingship and the priesthood, which were supposed to by Torah law remain separate. Um, and um and so here you're seeing like and yet another kind of invasion into that by someone buying their way into the high priesthood who is also like breaks the rules of it and doesn't seem to care and nobody seems to care so that's just another kind of Talmudic story about how bad the Hasmoneans were as kings um but anyways so that um but but anyways so sort of Moshe's point is that there's kind of these two ways and they both seem to work which is like pretty amazing um but also seems to kind of open the door of the high priesthood when you think about it in that way so that that when you read about it kind of in the Torah so it's Aaron and his son Elazar and and you have other high priests who pop up um in the Navi and they all sort of seem I mean you have some bad ones you have the sons of Eli for example they're they're bad and bad things happen to them um but um but you have some some really some really great high priests um who do really good things and it sort of seems like this like very like holy 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 position and now you're starting to see that a little bit come apart with the the stories from the Hasmoneans and what I want to say is that that coming apart is actually helpful because it opens a door for us to walk through um, but at the same time so on the one hand right maybe the high priesthood is, is more open than we might have thought maybe we can kind of buy ourselves a seat in the, the high priesthood synagogue or whatever I don't know if that failed anyway sorry um, <laughs> we're just gonna keep moving um, but on the other hand, here's how the high priest is supposed to act. And I want to say on the one hand that maybe the corruption of the high priesthood opens the door for all of us to become high priests. And on the other hand, um, if you are a high priest, you have to act like it. And I, I um, there's been a move in recent years um, to like wear white to show on Yom Kippur and I totally do that and it's great and I love it. But if you had um, asked I don't know, like if your grandparents lived in America and you asked them what they wore to synagogue on Yom Kippur, does anyone want to give a description of, of what your grandmother might have might have said if you asked her? There's also a great scene in uh, Mrs. Maisel. Probably furs, maybe? Like literally the fanciest clothes you own. Like fanciest, most expensive. If you had fur something, you were wearing it. Um, that was what you were wearing on Yom Kippur because um, you wanted to be like decked out. Um, and um, 
that's actually like a pretty good and and oh and also like the public display of wealth that comes along with that that also might be like a pretty good read of what you're supposed to be doing so here's here's a little bit more about the high priest um according to the Rambam. so kohen gadol tzrich sheya gadol mikolachah v'kohanim v'noi v'koach v'osher v'chachma u'v'mar'eh um he needed to be above his fellow priests in beauty strength wealth wisdom and appearance. So this idea of like, be more beautiful than everyone else, be more wealthy than everyone else. It's actually about your physicality. Like that's definitely the case in the Rambam's understanding of the high priest. Um, and you have to like help him get there. So So if he's not the wealthiest priest, everyone has to like give him their money until he becomes the wealthiest priest. And like, can stop <laughs> which is like pretty amazing um i can definitely suggest that all the other priests have to be on board with who the high priest is going to be or he forces them to take away their money maybe but it kind of seems like they're supposed to like give of their own i don't know you could probably read that in many ways um and um and our mom says of course none of this actually like holds him back meaning if he's not the prettiest of the priests like he can still um he can still be the high priest it's just like better if he is um oh shoot i'm running out of time already okay um and oh but here's here's the part that i actually really like he has to maintain self-respect um so he has to like be really dignified all the time he can't appear naked around other people um at the bathhouse or in that or in the bathroom or when he's getting his hair cut he has to kind of be separate um and he, he can't like go to parties that's really easy on Yom Kippur by the way um, don't go to anyone's uh, parties uh, but he can go make um, he can go make shiva calls and there's this whole description here about like how he goes um, and, and all of the like pomp and circumstance with which he like makes an appearance at a shiva home and um, and then, but even once he makes an appearance, they have to, they have to honor him um, for the fact that he showed up. And, um, and, and here's another, there's another like really great line here. Okay, so he has to have a house in the Beit Amikdash, and that's called the Chambers of the High Priest, Lishkat Kohen Gadol. So, and it, it is to his glory and his honor that he should sit in the mikdash all day long meaning if he's like out and about on the street that's like not considered dignified for the high priest like you have to kind of be here and and it's like it almost like it's like a how-to be like really dignified and reserved that you have to like be in your place let people come to you you know like don't be out amongst the people you be up there you're kind of an you're an artifact um and uh and that's what it'll mean for you to be, for you to be, to, to, to have splendor and honor. And you should only leave the mikdash to go to your house and only at night. Or maybe if you want to take a little schnatzorayim in that afternoon, you can go home for that too. And you have to live in Jerusalem and you're not allowed to leave Jerusalem. So there's all these like really specific rules about the high priest and where he has to be and how he has to be and how dignified he has to be and not just 
be dignified. It's like, here's exactly how I want you to be dignified. Um, and so, um, and, and a lot of it has to do with these like really external signals of dignity, um, which are like showing wealth and beauty and kind of staying put and 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 keeping your clothes on and and all this you know it's funny with that keeping your clothes on piece of things that um part of the Yom Kippur ritual for the high priest is that he goes to the mikvah like a whole bunch of times um and so there's actually like the Mishnah describes how he did that in like a modest way and they like held up a sheet and all of that so so um anyway it's right because it's funny when like your job requires you to not be wearing clothes but your dignity requires you to yes be wearing clothes um anyways I figured out how to do that. Okay, so here's the point. Um, we're not going to read all of this. I brought you like a ton of the avoda, and this is only a small portion. The avoda is okay. the avoda is, um, and this is the Ashkenazi one. There, the Sephardic avoda is actually much easier language and much easier to follow. But and do I have it here? One second. The for the Sephardic, um, I don't get paid by these people. I promise, but. Um, if you're Sephardic, the um, Koran put out with Mahona Megdash, a Yom Kippur Mahzor with pictures. Um, they only put it out in, in, in um, Sephardic Nusach, so it's fun, but not useful if you're Ashkenaz. Um, but anyways, but we're going to look at the Ashkenaz Avoda. So the Avoda is a poem that's recited in, um, as part of the, the repetition of the um, of the leader on Yom Kippur at Musaf. Um, now this year, if you are going to show, amazing, I, I, I'd be shocked to hear that there was a show that's cutting out the avoda. Um, they might be doing a lot of it quietly and quickly, which most shows do in most years. Um, and, um, but if you are davening um, on your own, then you have a really great opportunity to not do that. And instead, after you've said your private Musaf, open up the the leader's repetition and actually read um and i would suggest reading in english because the hebrew is very 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 hard um or if you want to spend all day with like the hebrew and a dictionary that you know you'll get through like half of it um, and that might be a really great way to spend your day um but what but what it does uh, and we're, we're not gonna oh sorry so i copied this from safaria and uh there was some like weird stuff mixed into it anyways um what it does is starts from the creation of the world so we have right we 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 uh we we call god by god's like big big bang moniker source of all energy and power um, and uh you constructed chambers above cold waters placed the globe in space and the world was filled with total darkness you wrapped yourself in your garment radiating with the morning light um and then right you divide the waters right but all brishy 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 creation of the world placed in the sky along with host of stars and constellations fish you created this is my personal favorite the leviathan which you reserved for the feast of torah scholars um because well, there's a great joke about that um that that uh why does god need both the leviathan and the shor habor um as his playthings and the answer is that uh, the from person goes to heaven and when offered uh when offered the shor habor says i'll take the fish because <laughs> they don't trust god Shrita, and then god has to bring out the leviathan um anyways um so it's just for the torah scholars who don't who don't trust god's uh god's ability to 
to shock the animals appropriately. And um, anyways, okay, fine. So animals, animals. Okay, then we have the creation of man from clay and the likeness of your image. Breathe into him with your soul. Um, and then you, you created a helpmate for him, that's me. Um, you commanded him not to eat from the tree. Okay, he, he violated your command, he gets punished. The snake also gets punished. Um, they had a baby, she became pregnant, gave birth to a farmer and a shepherd. Um, so right, so now, now we've like moved forward a few generations. You have Cain killing Havel. Um, and then you have the flood. Uh, the dreaded floodwaters you summoned, they were drowned and destroyed. An arrogant generation erred and dared tell you go away. They were tossed away by the boiling water. They were burned and scalded. But Noah was commanded to build an ark, okay? Um, his sons you made fruitful. They filled the face of the earth. And then you have a unite. You have the Tower of Babel, conspired to build a tower into the heavens. Okay, so then you have Avraham here. Um, and then you have Yitzchak. You have... Uh, Yaakov, he desired to sit in tents and followed you. Righteous children you brought forth from him, all of whom stayed true to their heritage, none ever deviating. So this is an important point, right? That from the beginning of the world through Yaakov, every generation, some people get split off from the path. And then all of a sudden that Yaakov, you have, you have a path that, that doesn't, that everyone gets um, gets included, all the sons get included, right? This idea that none ever deviated is a, a very poor reading of Brishi, probably. Um, anyways, um, and then uh, to serve you, you desire to leave your pious one. From his tribe, you chose Aaron to be your holiest, to wear the holy mitre in the Urim and Tumim, and to dwell inside the tabernacle for seven days. Upholders of the Jewish faith, um, a week before the 10th uh, day of Tishrei secluded the high priest as was done the seven days after the completion of the Mishkan. They sprinkled upon him water mixed with the ashes of the red heifers in order to purify him. Each day he gets sprinkled, okay, um, and he like does all this work um, to acquaint himself with the daily service as is written in your Torah as it was done on this day, Hashem commanded that it be done to atone for you. Okay, so just, yeah, Tali, one second, I just want to finish the sentence. So according to this poem, what is like the culmination of creation? All creation from the beginning until now was created so that this could be done, so that Kavarah could be achieved, so that atonement could be achieved. Otherwise, why are we starting? I mean, this is just the beginning the, and, and it's only a tiny fraction of this long poem and it starts from creation Tracing, do, 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 do. how did we get to here? Because this is actually the point, which is really like an incredible thing to say, um, because you wouldn't really think that um, if the point of it was forgiveness, like why did we have sin? And yet that's like the story. The story from the beginning is is sin, is Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve sin, their children sin, their children sin. You have the flood, you have the this, you have the this. What's the point in all of that? So that we could get to this place in which we have kapara, in which we have atonement, in which we have the ability to achieve atonement through this temple ritual that we're about to describe. Okay, Tali, go ahead. What were you going to say before? It's interesting that it completely skips like it's Yat Mitzrayim and getting the Torah. It goes from Yaakov to Aaron, already totally. in the Mishkan. Yeah. Great point. Right. We missed a bunch of highlights. And in some ways, I think it's because those highlights don't particularly have anything to do with this. 
Like we told a story of like sin, 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 sin. Oh, not sin. Yaakov's kids, not sin. Yaakov's kids. <laughs> and 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 by the way, the minute you want to talk about Yaakov's kids and sin, that's how you get to Egypt and that whole storyline. But we're not going there. We're going with Yaakov's kids, no sin. No one gets kicked out. Levy, and that's how we at, begin a world in which atonement is possible. Um, so yes, it's definitely a very strange um, telling of this story. Okay, I am not doing well on time, so I'm going to keep going um, because we haven't even gotten to like the choreography that I want us to look at yet. So okay, so then we get into this whole description of exactly what the high priest is doing, and what I want what I want you to remember that in your head of times you've been in shawl is because while you're reading this liturgy, what it seems like is actually Okay, so the temple is destroyed. So who's the high priest now? It's not me sitting in the pew. It's the person who's reading this. Who's um, and that person is the shaliyah tibor. Is the person who is is the person who's leading the service because he. This is his his pew. He's the one who asks permission um, as part of his um, his liturgy that's unique to him through the Hineni and through um, other, through Ochila, through other times where he asked permission from God and from the community to like add in these poems. And so he, so he's the one who's saying this poem that now the way we read it is we all read it quietly, but, but, but it's really like his poem. So then like, what is, um, so like, okay, so, so he's the high priest. What am I saying that, that we're actually all high priests? But then what starts to happen is he gets to, to the vidui. So we, we, so the, and he does, we do this three times. They, there's a, on, twice on the ox and once on, the, on the, one of the sheep. Um, so the first, and, and when he does it, how do we do it in Shul? The, the person who's leading the Shalich Tibor says, Omer. And this is what he used to say, Ana Hashem. And what do we do? We call back, Ana Hashem. Chatati, chatati, aviti, aviti, pashati, right? I have sinned before you, me and my house. And we call in response back. And so what I think is happening in that moment, and we do it again, by the way, um, Oh, sorry. And then, so we'll call and response to that moment. And what I think is kind of happening is that in that moment, he's sort of teaching us, like, this is how you be the high priest. Like, yes, I'm the prayer leader here, but I'm not the high priest. We're all the high priest. And as the Shalich Tibor, I'm just kind of guiding you through this high priesthood that has now been equally distributed. But we also have moments where we need other players. So here where we have Kohanim, so, so he would say he would, he would do that. Um, and, and he would also say, as it says in the Torah, so the Hebrew here is actually important. On this day, you will be atoned and purified from all of your sins. And the verse is, that is the verse in the Torah. But what happens here is, and then the scene switches to everyone else who's all around. And now we become all the other people also. So Vakonim, right? Um, and the whole nation that are standing in the Azara, which is this, right? We, he said, I mean, 
when now we would just say okay Bobby, we say we say adonai right but but what they're describing is a pronunciation of god's name that we don't even have anymore unless i don't know maybe the Quranic would know it and they're just not telling any of us um when they would so everyone would hear him say that say that name and now we become all those people who are standing around who hear him say that name then this is what we do so they would hear that name of god and they would bow down on their faces um which is what what we do in that moment so when we're bowing down on our faces we're not the high priest anymore we're all the other people around but the shalich tibor is also doing that right he also bows so he's also like ditched his role as high priest to now be normal priest who's standing around hearing um, and then, and then, and and we all say the Umrim, sorry, upon hearing the name of God. And then, right, and then, we prolong the intoning of the name until worshippers completed their And then you would say Titaru, both as a commandment to like cleanse yourselves, but also as the finishing of this verse, Lifnei Hashem Titaru. That's a great use of the verse um, from that we saw above it from Achrimot, but also mixed into the choreography. And we, in our bowing down, are jumping around, right? We were, when we were doing the, the confession, Ana Hashem, Chatati, Aviti, Bashati, there were the high priests. Then we all now have switched to being the priests all around and their choreography. And then we're telling the story of that he then, now we, we go back and we say, um, Titaru and, and, um, and, and ask for, um, arouse your mercy pardon your faithful servant okay and then i just want to point out one other place where we do that same call and response um we do we do this again we do this three times first just for um our own then for all the kohanim then for a high priest then all the priests and then for uh, and then for uh, and then on the the scapegoat on this year we do it for um for the whole Jewish people. Um, but after the second vidui, you kill the ox and you sprinkle his blood. And then he goes in and with the sprinkling, he would count because he has to get the sprinkling, right? So that's the achad, 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 v'shayim. Because he sprinkles um, one up and seven down. So one up is achad and then achad, achad is the first one down. Achad, v'shayim is the second sprinkle down the third sprinkle down and when we do this again the, the tradition in our synagogues is that the, the shalich tibor the person leading the service will, will call out achat and everyone responds achat right so we're, we're sprinkling with them we're doing this kind of verbal um reminder of of how to sprinkle correctly along with the along with the the prayer leader so those are the those are the moments throughout the Avodah, um, where we're saying not just like the world was created for this moment, but also, and not just that this used to happen in the temple, but also in our recreation of it, it creates this like very expansive opportunity to imagine who we are. So 
right? If you were in the temple, if you were the high priest, you weren't doing what all the other priests were doing. And if you were doing what all the other priests were doing, you weren't doing what the high priest was doing. But in our liturgy, we can all do all of it. Um, and that actually opens up like really exciting possibilities. And if you want to say to yourself, well, I could never be the high priest. Well, that's when you have to remember that, you know, Yanai was appointing high priests right and left just because they paid enough money. Um, and that um, really anyone could be could be a high priest. Um, ideally, they should like be a priest and whatever. But but I think it really does kind of open the like lower the bar a little bit from this vision of like our own everything needs to be perfect. Every, if it's not perfect, you'll die. It's still for sure a high stakes moment. But it opens the door to who can be in that high stakes moment. Um, and so yes, on the one hand, we are welcomed in. On the other hand, the expectations of us then are quite high. And I love that that Rambam that we that we looked at together about how the Kohinga dealt with instructions for like how to be dignified and regal um, that the high priest needs to follow. Um, I'll just stop sharing so I can actually look at them for you. Um, and um, and all the ways in which. Um, on the one hand, like we're welcomed into this like really intense role. And on the other hand, that intense role comes with these responsibilities about how we're supposed to act on this day um, or, or how we're supposed to act when we're in that role. Um, but I love that our liturgy says, you know, we don't have the temple anymore. And so we have to, so this day needed to be reinvented. And as that day was reinvented, we can't imagine the day without a high priest. So who's going to be the high priest? It's not the Kohanim who are like around doing their thing. They, you know, we have Birkat Kohanim on Yom Kippur and it's not like the ritual was just us watching them do stuff or us sitting at home and the priests did stuff. No, it's this incredible democratization of the high priesthood to all of us. But then, okay, so here's going back to like, who is the high priest and what does it require of us? It requires of us tremendous dignity. Um, there's a dream, at least, that the high priest would have been appointed by the Sanhedrin to be the representative of all the other priests, to be ritual leaders, um, and to come and desire to come into this, this dangerous um, encounter with the Almighty in the holiest place at the holiest time. Um, and that's a really big responsibility that even as it got democratized and even as the door was opened um, to that for all of us, then should, I think, weigh very heavily on us on this day um, as we kind of imagine ourselves into having the opportunity to enter the Holy of Holies, undergoing this intense like affliction of the self um, in order to be um, purified enough or purged enough in order to go to go in and to be representative um in in that way um so I know I need to wrap up I could probably like keep waxing on about this forever but I think you got the point um and um I also just wanted to say I'll stick around for a minute or two for questions but thank you all so much I I know there's been a lot of people who who have come to all of these and I really appreciated your uh your sticking with me on this little journey from Sliho to Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, um, and I, I'm sure there's lots of other examples of times when our liturgy asks us to step into roles that are not our own and that are big and that are daunting and scary and vulnerable and require bravery, um, which I think we've seen in all of these days, um, but I hope also that, that our ritual gives us um, the language um, that helps us get there and the tools that help us get there so we can feel confident um, standing before God on these, on these days and making the types of demands that we need to do 
demand and that our world needs of us um, in, in, in these times and in all times, really. So um, I hope you have a beautiful Shana Tova and a Gemar Chatima Tova. Um, and I hope you have the strength and the, and the, um, and the courage to, um, to be the high priest. And I did just want, by the way, um, to go back just super quickly to um, a text we saw together in our first, it will open for me. Do, do, do. Oh, this is the wrong one. Okay, never mind. I'm not going to open it for you. Um, in in the Slichot one, where we saw the high priest going into that into the holy of holies, and God says to the high priest, "Bless me." And what the high priest says back to God then is, "I hope your midat harachimim wins," which is really um, really quite an intense. And then we saw God blessing God's self to say that also. And what um, it it really requires like a great deal of um, confidence to say, God, I want to, I want to see you on your best behavior. <laughs> and that's what he did. And then God was like, yep, that, that's a good prayer. I'm going to say that prayer for myself. Um, and um, so I hope we all have the confidence that, um, that, that, uh, that that Kohinga Adol had and, um, and, and that our liturgy requests of us to become the Kohinga Adol and, and to have um, on Yom Kippur on Monday. All right, thank you for joining, and I'm happy to stick around for a couple of minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Sarna, for this really, really amazing end to this wonderful series. Um, for folks who are interested in learning more about some of our upcoming classes, including two more classes that Rabbi Sarna is gonna be teaching this fall, you can check out drisha.org slash classes. Uh, we've got a full slate that are starting up again after the Chagim, so we'd encourage you to take a look at that. Um, but again, thank you all so much for being here. And as Ravani Sarna said, she can stick around and, and chat for a few more minutes if anyone's interested. I'm sure I convinced you all. Can I ask a question? Yeah, please. Hey, good to see you. Hi, good to see you too. Um, I was wondering, so I know the Rambam the, from the Mishnah Torah's source was very physical, and I think you touched on that a lot. Um, but appearance and wealth, all these material things. And I wonder, like, how does that transfer to us and does it at all? Um, that kind of also connects back to the original requirements of being a coin, like this perfect physical vessel. And how can we think of ourselves as that if we have the things that might be literally excluded from being a Kohen Gadol if we were in those times, or even just not the wealthiest person in the room or not the most beautiful, even in those ways as well? Is that, is that a framework we should still be thinking about for ourselves or like a different reworking of it to make it more tangible for us? Or if you have any thoughts about that? Totally. Um, so I think it's definitely a little bit take it or leave it. One way that I do like to think about it, though, is I was making jokes about how if he's not the wealthiest, everyone needs to like give them their money. But there is something really lovely about that of like, if you don't feel like you're the wealthiest or you don't feel like you're the most beautiful, then maybe the people around you can like help you feel more confident and more dignified in yourself. And that maybe it's like not only our job to feel ourselves to be high priests, but to help the person next to us to feel that they are a high priest too, and to give them the dignity and honor and respect um, and to help them like, like feel that through physical things or not. Um, and um, so I do, I do really like that element of, of those sources. And I also think that um, dignity is in some ways accorded through like the gashmias, like through physical things, and that it doesn't necessarily need to be like, I'm the wealthiest person in the room, but it, it maybe like wearing special clothes for Yom Kippur or clean clothes or taking a shower before or whatever it is to say, like, wait, it's funny, this day that's all about Inui Nefesh and all about, um, 
all about like like in some ways you would think like oh I'm supposed to be like degraded on this day that actually we all get dressed up and wear nice clothes but funny shoes that don't match our nice clothes like that's a really weird thing that we do and I think um, and, and on Tisha B'Av, we don't do it even though the rules seem similar but actually in some ways the two days couldn't be more different because on Yom Kippur it's about in some ways like transcending the body and using the body as a way to gain transcendence um, and Tisha B'Av has nothing really to do with that Tisha B'Av is like I'm sad and my body is showing how sad I am um, and we just kind of have similar tools to do that um, and so in some ways like the usage of our body to gain this transcendent capability I think is very much present in the day and um, and we do it by these like contradictory body things which I think is so fascinating um, so I do think like tapping into some of the like grandeur that's described to him um, even in kind of I don't know, like, even in, like, more mundane ways. Um, I think it, it's, it's actually, like, a helpful tool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Definitely. good question. I, think. Okay. I spotted Zelda for a second. It was good to see your face. Hi from your hometown. Um, it's funny that when we finished the Pasuk Titaru, only the Chazan says that, right? Yes. Like, we don't all go back to being the high priest to finish the Pasuk. Only he does. Right, he does. Maybe we're still other priests at that point. So he's, like, telling us. Titaru. I think you can play around with, like, if if, if you had, I think I've, I've said this in previous ones of these classes, but, like, if you had this as, like, a, a play and you were the director, like, there are different ways you could stage it. Mm -hmm. Um but I, I think that's the way I normally think about it, as what's going on. It's a very weird, like, you're getting stage directions. You, like, interrupt the going gadol and then say, and at the same time, over there, like, it really does read, like, stage directions as the text is, right? Totally. There's other times, not, I don't think in the Avuda, but um, there's, like, other times in the, um, in, in Yom Kippur, and I think the Mishnah describes it, where it tells you like there's two different things going on at once in the Beit HaMikdash, like the Kohen Gadol is like reading Torah somewhere and like Korbanot are being like burned or brought elsewhere. And you couldn't see both from any one place. You had to like choose what you wanted to watch. I think it says in the Mishnah explicitly, like you couldn't see both, either the Mishnah or the Rambam, sorry, I'm like a little bit not sharp on that. Um, but, but you have other times you really get this like vision of like how the Veda Migdash like was laid out and what the experience might have been like to be there. And um, yeah. Because it is, it's a day full of stage directions. Mm -hmm. Very seriously. And if you don't know what's going on with this Titaru like cut in the middle, like it's not, it's, it's hard to follow the text a little bit because they're like cutting a pasuk in half in, in like two, two sections. The Avodah is super hard. There's you, you could spend like your entire life in day school and in shul and not have any clue what's happening here. I think. Totally. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but also, it's good because it means you know, like, the, like I think Yom Kippur liturgy is like infinitely interesting, and you can like spend your whole life like reading it and rereading it and have new insights. Um, a hundred percent. Like I was, you know, like I was in college before I realized like what is even happening in that opening part of the Avuda that like all of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and Matan Torah get cut out because we want to just tell this story about Levi like it, it, and it's such a weird story like the, the Torah didn't choose to tell a story like that you know and and also even like Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov each get one sentence but like creation gets a ton Noah gets a ton it just and like 
if you look at later in Jewish texts, like Noach gets very little attention. And Tziyam Yitzrayim is mentioned all the time. It's just like not representative of the way that Jewish history or biblical history is like told later. 100%. 100%. Yeah, no, it's super weird. But it's all about, it's like sin, the world was created, and then there's sin, and now we're here. And this is what we do now. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll say a lot of Talia, we have a phone call, and uh, we'll talk. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. Good night, everyone. Good night.